you straight up anybody alive uh, in laos after operation homecoming in 1973 american pow we've had uh, some reports there uh, the reports that i think are uh, most most worthy of consideration in laos are those uh, in the 1972 uh, time frame anybody else and also the uh, the reports associated with the baron 52 incident Kind of addressing your concerns that you had following up after the committee, um, which we really appreciated as I was beginning, you know, my research and really seeing how vocal you were um, that a lot of things were not resolved. Um, that, you know, we've touched on a lot of them today, um, but just kind of wanted to understand from, you know, there was kind of a long laundry list um, in the in the letter and we'll attach all of these documents for the audience to see. Um, your letter to Carrie that was, I guess, about two months, you had about two, three months left of the of the committee and all of the things that you felt were really, really priorities to um, to address before the closing of the committee and the urgency of that. I wanted your sense of, of you know, what, how many of those were addressed, how many were left on the table um, and and how you felt that was really addressed, you know, by the committee in that last, you know, quarter of the time that you had to really um, address all of those things. I would say 90% of that okay. list of 102 bullets that I put in that letter mm -hmm. were not addressed, were tabled, wow. 90%. Um, I, obviously, we, we can't run through 102, but but there are maybe four or five that I would I would like to address quickly mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think they were very significant. One of them was we wanted access to the Nixon tapes because uh, if there were live POWs in, in Vietnam in 1973, uh, I don't think uh, Nixon would want to leave them there. Uh, I think he, he got what he was told, but we, we, we would, would have been very interesting to hear the tapes of the discussions that Kissinger had with Nixon about those lists, if they existed. Um, and so that was one thing that was never addressed. And um, one thing also that made it almost impossible, you know, Kerry made me dismiss Dino Carluccio so that I didn't even have my staff to, uh, assistant uh, to finish the, the rest of the committee. I don't know if people knew that in the public or not. Well, they made up some BS about him with classified information. It was total BS. It was uh, he hadn't had his 
he had a clearance. It expired. He wasn't able to get it back. And uh, he was trying to get it. We were in the middle of things. It wasn't a big deal. It was nothing. Uh, and they, and so they, they made me dismiss Carluccio, and they wouldn't let me appoint anybody that I wanted. Kerry wanted to put his person in there, and I refused. So I went the rest of the way without a, without anybody. Uh, Dino worked behind the scenes, but couldn't couldn't be out there in the front, you know, uh, and helping me in the hearings and so forth after a certain point. So, uh, so I think that I just look and I wrote down a couple of things on on these ones that were the most important. The clusters that I spoke of earlier was on that list, uh, Heather, in that letter. And they, the John Kerry and Francis Winnig, Kerry's staff director, destroyed all of those clusters. All of that evidence was destroyed, shredded, in a violation of the law. They violated the law. That is a, that is a, I, I, I can't tell you how upset I was to hear that. And not only did you know about the ones in Bangkok that they destroyed, yes. well, they destroyed them here too. They All those cluster reports, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks putting that information together and they destroyed it all. They, they said it was BS and they destroyed it. So that was one that was obviously addressed in the wrong way. I wanted also to declassify everything other than what would be absolutely a threat mm -hmm. to national security, but 95% of it could have been declassified. It wouldn't matter. Uh, the war was technically over. We were out. So what the hell? Not a, not very little. I mean, we got a lot of stuff to classify, but not as much as we should have. I, I wanted the, I, I wanted that to, to happen. And there were just two or three others that I wanted to highlight. It was a, an alleged offer during the Reagan administration when Reagan first took office for POWs. And I spoke to a Secret Service agent, and I, 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 just, I, I knew his name at the time. I, I don't recall it now. Who told me he overheard in the Oval Office that the, uh, an offer was presented uh, to, I can't remember who Reagan's top guy was then, uh, but Reagan had to investigate it. And I don't know if it was true, but uh, he said that he heard that. And, um, and so we wanted to have him testify and Kerry went ballistic. We can't have a secret service agent testify, you know, can't do that, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you can't, maybe you're not supposed to, maybe it's a bad thing, but they didn't do it. Um, and let me see. And the other, another one, which was very bad, and it was also on this list. I'm working off the list that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. It was a time when the, and I don't know if I can explain this quickly so that you all understand it. I was talking to my wife about it a little while ago, reverse imagery. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, when, I remember this one, yeah. Okay, well, then you all know what that is. I'll just quickly state it. No, please, go right ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. when, when the, if, 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 let's just pick a witness. Say Bobby Garwood says, I walked down Lee Nam Day Street I got to I got to the end of the street. I turned left and there was a building there. And in that building, I saw a POW and around that building were was a cistern and a bunch of trees. So I go back and I read the briefing uh, of Bobby Garwood by the DIA. And it says Bobby Garwood was a fabricator because when we walked down Lee Nam Day Street, there was no building on the left. There were no trees on the left. They were on the right. The trees were on the right. The building was on the right. So therefore, he couldn't have seen any POW in that building on the left because there wasn't one. He made it up. He lied. Well, the truth of the matter is the building was on the left. They reversed the imagery and showed Bobby the imagery with the building on the right 
and the trees on the right. So if somebody showed you that and they said, here's a map and, and you say, okay, there's a street over here on the right. And, and you say, damn, it was on the left. I know it was on the left. If they showed you the reverse imagery, put it in the wrong place, you'd, you'd be scratching your head too. That's what they did. And they did it not only to Bobby, they did it to hundreds of witnesses and we exposed it all. And I wanted, I wanted them to come in and defend what they did, but Gary wouldn't let me put them in there. And I spent days and weeks with Bobby Garwood, sometimes in, in private locations, in hotel rooms, we sat and talked days at a time. And I believe every word he says about, about live sightings. And yet he was, McCain threatened to destroy him if we brought him, so we didn't bring him. We deposed him uh, quietly uh, and also his attorney. And, uh, and, I, and again, here's a guy that was there for six years, you know, after the war, he saw what he saw. And I believe him when he said he saw live POWs. He had several different sightings. And the big, the big one, which wasn't even in the letter, uh, and I was surprised it wasn't in the letter that I wrote to Kerry. I don't really know why I left that out, whether it was inadvert inadvertent or maybe it was because it was pretty classified at the time and I may not have wanted to keep the letter. I think I wanted to keep the letter um, open to the public so that the public could see it. So I didn't put it in there. That may have been the reason. I'm not sure. But this was the one where General Kwong, uh, of a North Vietnamese general, addressed the uh, North Vietnamese Politburo. Um, and I can't remember uh, the year. Um, and he said, it was during the war, and he said, we have 1,200 and some odd American POWs. And we are not going to... This was his, I'm paraphrasing, this is what he said. And we are not releasing them until we get our reparations as promised by President Nixon after we negotiate the end of the war. Well, as you know, we had 500 and some who came back. Uh, and yet, he's, so that's half. So where were the other 500? Uh, and why would General Kwong discuss that? And so... I said, well, maybe somebody, maybe somebody's wrong. Maybe, maybe somebody made that up. Maybe, it, maybe it's not true. How, how can we establish that General Kwong gave that speech? So, I heard, we when on one of my trips to Russia, I had heard that, I'd heard a rumor, let's put it that way, that the Russian KGB had secretly uh, recorded uh, the the uh, Vietnamese war. Obviously, they didn't want that out. Because they were technically friends, you know, they were not—they were not enemies. They were on the same side, the Soviets and the Vietnamese. So there was a guy that I had befriended over there, a Russian KGB guy, Soviet KGB, and he and I went out and had a couple of vodkas, and we were talking. And I said to him, "What do you know about this?" And he said, "Oh, uh, that's true." I said, "Well, how do you know it's true?" Uh, and uh, he said, Senator, do you know what a tape recording is? Do you know what secret recordings are? I, you know, he's being funny. I said, yes. He said, well, that's how we know. We have word for word, verbatim speech of what that man said. And he said, every single thing in that speech uh, was true. Troop movements were talked about. Who was, who, how many casualties here and there? You know, where Vietnamese took heavy casualties, where the U.S. took casualties, where the troops are stationed, movements, all this stuff was all in this speech. And included in there was the stuff about POWs. Well, Mel Laird, 
verify, and I'm pretty sure it was Melvaird, verified that everything in the 1205, they call it the 1205 document, 1,205 POWs, verified that those 1,205, that 1205 document, everything in it was true, but they wouldn't verify that the part about POWs was true. Just everything else. Everything else the guy said, the guy's a liar when he talks about POWs, but everything else he said, he's absolutely right. That's what I was facing, and I wanted that investigated. Uh, and we, we couldn't do it. Kerry uh, uh, blocked it. But, but the Soviet Union, Soviet, the Russians, not the Soviets at the time, the Russians, when we went there, were pretty cooperative. Hmm. Had to drink a lot of vodka to get them talking, but they, could, they were pretty cooperative. They were. And they told us a lot. And they gave us a lot of information about the North, uh, in North Korea, too, about uh, Koreans, uh, uh, the Russians shooting down our guys in North Korea, in Korea. I wanted to ask a little bit more related to that, but specific to Laos, because a couple of your um, items on that list uh, to carry were related to, you know, doing a deposition with uh, former Royal Lao General Vang Pao, um, who I don't know exactly when he moved to the United States, if it was, if he was in the United States at that at time or not, um, and also the evaluation of um Sorry, I'm just scanning this really quick. Um, the depositions of certain embassy officials and CIA station chiefs from Laos as well. Just curious, since Baron 52 is so related to Laos, just curious if any of those things ever happened or what Kerry's response was. Totally, totally ignored. Uh, we, we never, we were never able to uh, pursue that. And again, you know, uh, that's part of the problem, uh, John Majov. That's part of the problem is that you know, we weren't supposed to be there, obviously, uh, you know, and uh, the, the Vietnamese, you know, the North Vietnam, the trail uh, and uh, the Ho Chi Minh trail. And we were in Laos. We weren't supposed to be blah, blah, blah. And and so they, they didn't want to they didn't want to go there. They didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and uh, and Cambodia is the same thing with the Parrot's Peak and all that stuff. And and so we just it was just a black hole, if you will. I, I happen to know just by pure happenstance. A doctor friend of mine who's now deceased, who served as a in the special ops in Laos, and we talked for day hours about it. He uh, he, he was he was you know if if anything happened to him, he, they, they wouldn't even they couldn't even tell his wife what happened to him. I mean, it was he survived, but I mean, it, and so Laos was just a black hole. But there were I'm trying to what's the name of the family, John? You'd probably know the name of the family. I'm drawing a blank now. Who had a there was definitely a prisoner in a cave there for. Was that Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, he was definitely alive. Now, whether he survived after the war, we don't know, but they sure as hell know what happened to him. They never told us. Yeah. Laos was, was, was bad. Uh, no one wanted to talk about Laos. And so we were kind of pretty much shut down. The thing I'll never understand about Kerry, I don't mean to just badmouth him, but I don't, they were so hell bent on getting out of there. Um, out of the issue, get the POW issue off the table and get diplomatic relations restored. Uh, I don't know if it was guilt from the war on the part of McCain or, or what the hell it was, but they were in tandem, a Republican, Democrat, they were in tandem. Yeah. Um, yeah I just never understood McCain's uh, attitude during those hearings. I mean, you would think that he would have been, you know, one of the most empathetic 
And when he addressed the family members, I mean, he was just downright uh, belligerent with them, you know, disparaging of them. And I never understood that and, you know, could not. No, that's, the way he, that's the way he was with me. I mean, he was, he was, the way he was with them was exactly the way he treated me as a colleague. And not only me, others, Chuck Grassley as well. I'll let Grassley speak for himself, but, but I know there, there were, I witnessed several confrontations uh, involving Grassley and McCain. And McCain was just a, an antagonizer, uh, an instigator. Uh, he would, he loved to knit, you know, just a needle, 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 needle uh, on, on things. And he just thrived on it. I don't know. Uh, look, what the man went through, I didn't go through it. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry he went through what he went through. It was horrible. But um, I don't know whether there was an issue there or whether uh, it was just uh, guilt or wanting to put the war behind him or whatever. I, I don't know. But he was not at all interested in seeking uh, any time anything came up about the possibility of a live American anywhere he put yeah. the he put the brakes on it. He immediately mm -hmm. shot it down. He never gave yeah. us a chance to investigate it. Yeah. And there has to be a reason for that. But I I really I really don't know uh, what it was. And following the hearings, he passed the McCain amendments or something. I think that would, um, you know, the missing, the missing Persons Act. He he amended the Missing Persons Act, in which he took out the clause that said. Anybody knowingly withholding information about POWs uh, will be fined or be given two years in jail or both. He took that out. That's what McCain did. Yeah, yeah. He was. He he he's hard to explain. He was. We had an informal group of senators. We called ourselves the Vietnam Caucus. Those of us that had served in the war. Uh, it was McCain and Hank Brown, myself. Um, I can't remember. There were five or six. John, uh, Bob Kerry, John Kerry. There were seven or eight of us, Democrat and Republican. And Kane, McCain was kind of the, what you would call the ad hoc chairman, if you will. It was nothing formal. It was just an informal group. We'd meet every four or five months, and discuss stuff about the Vietnam War or whatever. And every time they'd have a meeting, he'd never invite me. And uh, so one day I heard on the fly that there was a meeting coming up that day uh, and I was, had not heard about it. And so I, I confronted him and he said, well, you didn't serve in Vietnam. You were on a damn ship. He says, hell, he said, you were floating around the ocean. He said, uh, I said, well, John, that might be true. I said, we were floating around the ocean refueling those ships that you were flying off of when you bombed. And if you hadn't been hit and knocked down out of the sky, you wouldn't have been in Vietnam either. Yeah. So what the hell is your point? Yeah. Uh, but that's the way he treated. That's the way he, that was his attitude. I bring that up only because that's his, that was his attitude about it. And I, I don't, I have no idea why. I mean, right. he clearly had injuries, physical injuries from the war. Maybe he had some mental ones. I don't know. But as I say, I mean, I'm sure he went through hell. I mean, I know I got a lot of, I talked to a lot of guys who went through hell, but still, uh, it was very disappointing, and I, and I should probably tell this story because you asked it in one of your questions, Heather, about uh, Bob Dole, and or not mm -hmm. Bob Dole, but about me getting the vice chairmanship. Um, McCain, I cre I wrote the bill to create the committee, and in retrospect, uh, maybe I shouldn't have because I go I lost control because Kerry got control of it and McCain, but 
somebody had to be the vice chairman, and that had that decision had to be made by the minority leader, who was Bob Dole. And McCain wanted it real badly, and he had went to Dole about it, and then Dole called me because he knew I wrote the bill. He called me into his office and he questioned me about it, and he said, uh, "Why do you want it?" and all this, and I explained, you know, what was going on. That I'd written the bill, I had worked this issue. McCain was kind of more on the diplomatic establishment, diplomatic relations. I'm for trying to find out what happened to the POWs, you know, whatever happens, you know, whatever it is, true, well, let's find out. And, and he, he said, well, let me think about it. And I said, Senator, you're the leader. If you choose to have, uh, uh, if you choose to have uh, him, John McCain, be the vice chairman, so be it. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. You're the boss. Well, he came back to me a couple of days later and he chose me. And McCain, I'm sure, uh, you know, was not happy about that. And, uh, and he, he was, from then on, there was just no, no real, rapport with John McCain and me on, on anything. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because Bob Bob Dole had obviously been, he'd been a supporter of this investigation oh, way back. In Shields' interview, he talked about how he had presented a bill in Congress to actually restart the war because of the violations in, I believe he said in March, it was in the spring after the peace accords were signed, to try to get support to, you know, start actively bombing again because, um, there were so many violations going on and obviously Baron 52's crew was, was missing and nothing was being resolved there. Um, but that was obviously shot down. So um, there was no, you know, no support in Congress to congr- continue with that. Um, so th- that's good to know that he was involved in the mix, but I'm, it's interesting to me that Bob Dole didn't want to be on the, the leadership of the committee himself. Well, he was, he was the, um, he was the leader the minority leader of the Senate, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, the rules would basically say, oh, that okay, he do it. Uh, it. And it, I don't, it would not have been appropriate for him Got to it. do okay. it. It was certainly appropriate in terms of his background, but mm-hmm. in terms of because he had the leadership position, um, he had he would he would have been better served to pick a Vietnam veteran, uh, obviously. But mm-hmm. but since I wrote the bill, I don't I think he would have given it to McCain had I, I not written the bill and worked so hard. To, on the issue, he knew the time that I'd put in on the issue. I traveled to Vietnam several times on before I even got to the Senate on on Codels in the House with Solomon and Bob Dornan and and others. So we had I had quite a history on it, and he knew that, uh, and so I'm sure that's why he did it. But I didn't pressure him. He made the choice, and uh, I told him I would accept his decision, whatever it was. Interesting. Wish we could ask him. <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure you can well, see was, your passion back, for it and, and the fair assessment of it as well. Yeah, I don't know a fairer man that ever I ever served with in Bob Dole. He he would he would back up what I just told you. Well, I'm assuming in these lists of of uh, those who testified that you had serious concerns about, um, you know, based on what I've been told by John and his many many years of research on this, that um, you know, Destot being one of those people on that list was never, you know, never reprimanded for the false things that he testified to. And even though they were found and changed in the record later, um, you know, there's a a long list of people who you had concerns with. And um, we can certainly add that list to the, the, you know, add all these documents with that list. But just wanted to ask, you know, if there really were any discussions about 
any reprimands to any of them or repercussions or if that really also was part of the black hole? Part of the black hole. They, they, I sent the letter. I, I tried my best to follow up with Clinton personally. Uh, in spite of the fact that there were different political parties, I had a decent relationship with Bill Clinton. He talked to me a lot about North Korea because I went to North Korea. Uh, I was the first U.S. senator to go there after the war. And uh, so I had a good rapport with Clinton, but I couldn't get Clinton or Reno to give me the time of day on, on this. It was just they considered it basically the staff, the, the senior staff, the majority staff, excuse me, on the committee thought it was a big joke, the letter. They, they got a good laugh out of it because, but those people lied. We get we, we cited chapter and verse in the letter about what they did. They lied under oath to the committee. Um, they lied in, in those, in some of the live citing reports. They lied when they reversed the imagery and on and on and on. You could go down the line. And there were plenty of examples of that. Um, and all we wanted to do was to have this exposed. And my point in writing, and you, you, you added the letter Bill Clinton, the one with Torino cited who these people were that had made false statements. So there was a there was a crime there. But in the case of the letter to Clinton, all I wanted to point out to Clinton was, look, he had just taken office. You know, he was new. He was coming on to the issue and I was trying to get his attention to it. You know, don't listen to just the people you that are, you know, stuck on this issue from the previous mm -hmm. administrations and have been there forever. Listen to some new information. Here's some new information. Don't believe me. Just check it out. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was trying to get him to come out of that and, and come out maybe and be a little bit challenging to these people, but he fell right into the same gutter with the rest of them and never never turned to these people. They stayed there forever. Probably some of them are still there. Can I ask a, a question about your relationship with the Defense Intelligence Agency? Did you have any allies within the DIA? I think allies would, would not be the right word. I felt that, and some may disagree with this, but I, I felt that Wick Torreson was a straight up guy. I, I was with him. He and I, he was the, one of the guys that debunked Garwood, debriefed Garwood down at Ocracoke. Um, and uh, I, I felt that Torreson was honest. I, I, he may have been manipulated some, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't dislike him. I felt he was okay. Uh, of course, General Ty, and then um, the guy that the general, um, not um, who was the one that resigned? Kimball, uh, uh, Peck? Colonel Peck, I think. Uh, Miller, Peck. Miller Peck, I think. Yeah, Miller right. Peck. He, yes, he, I right felt, he tried to be truthful and he got fired for it. Um, anybody who tried to be, free, you know, uh, truthful, and they didn't want. Uh, and one of the things on that list, uh, Heather, that I neglected to mention was that there was an effort made to uh, a coordinated effort by Zwinig at the committee, Francis Zwinig and John Kerry. Uh, and the, the, they would when they they made me when I had questions other than what developed in a kind of an ad lib situation, which I had a lot of. But they wanted to know what my line of questioning was going to be. And I had to submit it to Carrie. And she took that information and gave it to the DIA when they, before they testified. So my attitude on that is we're investigating them. We're not working with them. We're trying to find out what the hell happened. Why are we giving them our questions? They gave them all the questions they asked. And then they gave them, they tried to give them everything I asked. So a lot of times I just held stuff back. 
and just and that's why I ad lib because I wasn't damned if I was going to tell him uh, everything. So I could at least get. That's why he, that exchange that I had with the spot was was pretty testy because he was lying and I knew he was lying. He knew I knew he was lying. He knew I had done my homework, but he didn't know because I didn't tell Terry everything I was going to go into. But you notice on that, uh, John Majov, on that thing where he was hassling me about uh, the inter the intercepts, you know, he, yeah. he kept he kept hassling me about that because it kept I kept drawing information out of him. He kept he kept contradicting himself. He said yeah. he put words in my mouth. He said I said that these guys had survived. I didn't say that. He said it. He he not he didn't say they survived, but he made a comment about something. What the hell was it? I'm trying to. Oh, the seats, the seat belts, the yes. seat belts on, on the plane. He's the one that brought that up. I didn't bring it up. Yeah. And then he denied it. Then he said, "Oh no, there was no nobody saw any nobody saw any unbuckled belts." Okay, well, you brought it up. So he, I mean, he also way, said he also said in retort to your comment um, about the one analyst, where you were implying he was the one analyst. That uh, we have the danger of listening to one analyst, meaning to stat, and then he came back and said, "You so eloquently uh, uh, described why Mooney's a bad guy. He's the one analyst." It's alleged here by Senator Smith that uh, four guys could have gotten out of the aircraft. There were. I didn't allege anything. Yeah. Well, I use the facts. I use your radio messages. All I'm yeah. trying to point out is, in terms of analysis, let me just this way quickly an ec-47 is lost at a given day 5 february 1973 a radio transmission is received okay there are no other aircraft in the area that have been lost in that period of time there are four bodies eight people on the aircraft four bodies are recovered four are not i'm just saying when a question is asked and we look at the facts and a question is asked by a witness before this committee is there any evidence and you say no I think that is very, very misleading, if not downright being dishonest. Uh, with I the understand committee. the senator's and point. And I think you have to express what I, when we're trying, we're an oversight committee. We're trying to find out how you analyze data. And when I see that kind of response to questions that I'm trying to analyze data, I frankly don't know what to believe or what to, right. when you guys, so all I'm saying to you is you not only, not only, this is not simply a case here where you had no message. This was further than that. You got a message. You got a lot of activity on that message. It went all the way to Secretary Kissinger. That's how far that message went. So and maybe beyond. So it was not. So, and, and people, as a matter of fact, in the Eagleburger memo, it went so far as to suggest that maybe we ought not to even continue with the bringing home of the of the American POWs and maybe want to consider resuming the war as a result of this and other information that has been coming up. So this is not a small matter. And for one individual analyst to say before this committee that he himself decides that this is not a valid message when everybody else disagrees. And then to use all the all this stuff about the crash, if you didn't have the message, I, fine, I don't dispute any of it. But you had a message and you don't have any other aircraft missing in the area in that time frame. And you haven't explained it to me. And then you tell me, well, maybe if I go back, I could find somebody 20 years later. That's a little late. Sir, you've are your very, masters. Very, you're good. I give you credit. You're you, you have you have. And yeah. he reversed. He misdirected your shot at him and misdirected it away from him. Well, we know there's another analyst, and I'm not going to name him in this podcast, in which he actually viewed a message uh, of the four clean-shaven prisoners still in flight suits being marched down a road. 
Yeah. And, and that was discounted. So it isn't just one analyst. There are several analysts who agreed with it, but the stat got away with that as well. And and the, and the thing that I tried to point out was he he one one man to start throughout all, every everybody else that was in the equation thought enough of it to send it all the way up to Kissinger, right for the for the for the negotiations. But he decides all of that is bull now, and nothing none of it was true. And he one guy makes that decision, but one guy Mooney's wrong, right. and he's right. He, and he's right. Very good. That's that's what you yeah. were trying to. Yeah. That's uh, Yep. He's a master of deception, and you even I said I was frustrated. I was so you were. You said he's you're damn good at what you do, and that is they are yep. making bullshit. Right, excuse my language. Yes, <laughs> they got the fine art of BSing down to science. Well, I don't think the DIA really looked into that intercept that hard, other than what Destot was trying to say, because in a CIA document dated. Dated the same week as Baron 52 was shot down, Silao was broke out into logistical units or logistical areas. And just southwest of the Baron 52 crash site uh, was Bintran 44. And well, Bintran 44 could have been the reference to 44 in that intercept. Yeah, and I might I might just slightly disagree with you by saying I think I think they I think they made every effort to try to find they were desperately trying to find some way to show that it was somebody other than American pilots. They were, he was said, what did he say? My, a friend of a friend of mine of a friend of mine right. knew that there might've been a pilot, how, all that BS. And, and he said, one of them might be in the United States. We're trying to find him. Yeah. What he said. Right. And, and he also did a slip slip thing about this bin Tran and, and 44 and the root markers by, he took, he, he goes into his briefcase and he pulls out a North Vietnamese technical manual and said, this says, that if they ever use kilometer markers in their communications, they have to say kilometer markers. And he, uh, said, he issued a, a different translation of that single sentence. And what was that translation? Uh, that translation uh, changed the word uh, pilot to pirate and added a, a, a clause saying to the effect that uh, these people were the, the pilots were being pirates were being moved from 44 to 93. Do you know what 44 and 93 mean? 44 and 93 could be a whole host of things. Now, the uh, Jerry Mooney uh, chose to assume that 44 and 93 were kilometer markers. Uh, my experience, and, and I might add that uh, the first two years plus that I spent in Vietnam, I spent in Vietnam as a communications specialist doing this very sort of work. Uh, and in my experience, uh, both doing that kind of work and uh, as, a, as a, a fairly accomplished linguist, if this were if these were kilometer markers, it's virtually certain that they would have to have included the comment kilometer marker. Uh, it's uh, and uh, I have in my briefcase here uh, a book titled uh, "Regulations on uh, uh, Staff Tactical Staff Operations," and in here where they talk about using it's a Vietnamese publication published by their uh, uh, general staff directorate for the People's Army of Vietnam in 1975. Relevant. Uh, issued by the uh, uh, Institute for Military Studies. And as they point out, if you're going to deal in kilometers, you have to note that it's kilometers. And he said unwittingly, 
and this is dated 1975. Baron 52 was shot down in 1973. Exactly. I, I mean, he was he was tripping all over himself. The old adage, you know, all the tangled web we weave. Oh yeah. When we, you know, and he tripped all over himself, and no one called him out on that. No. So we can no. go all day about the stat. Um, no, he was. He's a, he's a bad man. He is. I'm yeah. sorry to say it. We feel the same. Yeah. No, he he definitely is a bad man. Um, and, and I had one other thing you mentioned, uh, Torreson, uh, Senator. Uh, yeah. How how involved did you get with Tom Lang? He was a he was a researcher, as Torreson was for the Senate Select Committee, because there's a document that Tom Lang submitted to the Senate Select Committee concerning the DIA. And in this document, he speaks of a box of secret classified PO document, POW documents. And when he went back to review that box and its contents, the Defense Intelligence Agency could no longer find it. Uh, were you in any way, shape or form aware of that statement that he, he wrote to the Senate Select Committee? I, I, I could have been, John, but I don't remember it. Uh, that's possible. I don't want to say no. Okay. Probably if I, I, I did. I, I do. I, I didn't dislike Tom Lang. I, I he was he was one of the more, uh, more straightforward ones. Um, the um, but I think I think the thing about it is if you take if you put an overlay over this whole thing, you know, from the, the end of the war uh, all the way till the present day. What I see <clears throat> in a general sense is we have more trouble getting answers out of our own government. Than we do out of the Vietnamese. I had many, many meetings with Vietnamese officials from the highest level to the lowest level. I never found them, to be honest with you, just unreasonable in terms of wanting to talk. I think if we had reached out better and, and, and was more, were more direct, uh, we could have solved a lot of these missing uh, cases and perhaps gotten more access than we got. But the Vietnamese were astonished, and they told me this. They told me this point blank. They were astonished that when the when the negotiators came in with Kissinger and sat down, I think I mentioned this before, but just to reinforce it, they were astonished at how little information we even sought uh, on on POWs. Like I said before, they kind of just that, okay, that's your list. Uh, away we go. And they clearly had information. I mean, we had films of captured pilots that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, will never, never return uh, and, and on and on and on. So I just think that the whole setup from beginning to end was was wrong. Uh, I think the committee, although we attempted to, to do the right thing, I, I think, and I'm, this is my own confession, I guess, I created it for the right reasons, but I think that we it was very difficult to stay focused on uh, on getting the truth when you're dealing with people who didn't want it. Didn't it's not that they didn't care about the truth; they didn't prioritize the truth. They wanted they felt like if we normalize relations, the Vietnamese will eventually tell us everything. My attitude was let's get everything and then normalize relations. There's no reason why they couldn't have worked with the Vietnamese. To get answers, especially on Baron Fifty Two, that was recent. That was right at the time of the accords. It was right there. There was no mystery about 
the Baron 52, what it was doing, where it was, where it went down. That Everybody could have gone in there and gone over that wreck with a fine-tooth comb and established one way or the other, you know, through the Vietnamese. If they took guys off that uh, plane and took them as POWs, then the North Vietnamese obviously would have known that, and we could have found the truth out right then, once and for all, uh, and, and settled it before we negotiated an end. We didn't do that. Uh, and that's just one example, and it's a good example because it's at the at the end of the war. But I just think that the whole thing was mishandled. We had uh, uh, a whole uh, a concept of not concept, but a, an, an attitude of of debunking everything. Anything that anybody said about a live sighting was a lie. Period. No questions asked. Uh, you know, we we didn't get, do a lot on Garwood, but one of the things that Bobby Garwood uh, that I know this for a fact because Vaughn Taylor is a friend of mine. Vaughn was his attorney, one of his attorneys, uh, when he came back. One of the things that the intelligence community said about Bobby Garwood was that he lied uh, when he was tried for being a traitor, which he was not a traitor. He was captured, and he and he, he uh, there was a guy killed. There was a Vietnamese killed in the capture, so he hardly was a traitor. They accused him of being a collaborator. Uh, after they left him there in 1973. But, but anyway, one of the things they said was that Bobby was made up made up this stuff during the trial about POW so that he would get a, a an easier uh, settlement out of, you know, he would get out and maybe not get some, not any prison time, or maybe he would get a better deal if he said he saw a lot of POWs. And he made all this stuff up. Well, when that came out, Vaughn Taylor, who's his, one of his attorneys, told me, well, you can easily disprove that, uh, Bob. He said you can do it very simply by calling up the psychiatrist's records because Bobby spoke to his psychiatrist the, when he came home because he couldn't even speak English. He spoke only, you know, he was a wreck, to put it mildly. So they sent him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist had a written documentation record. And in that record, Bobby talked about POWs. So they lied there. And so you have to say to yourself, why would they lie? Here's a guy, he's been in Vietnam for six years. I don't care if he was a traitor. I don't care if he was a collaborator. I don't care if he was a monkey. I don't give a damn what he was. If he says he saw POWs, why don't we investigate that? Before mm -hmm. The guy in prison for being a collaborator. Let's get. Let's find out what about POWs. That's who I care about. Not about a collaborator. I care about the POWs. He says he knows something about him. Let's talk to him. Instead, you prosecute him and they lie. And they, and they put him away and make a wreck his life. I mean, the guy can't even get Social Security. He's living where in the Philippines someplace now trying to list, you know, in some substandard existence. It's, a, it's, it's terrible. It's a, it's a terrible thing what they did to him for just trying to be truthful. Anyway, I, I get emotional about this. Stuff. No, and I can understand why. And uh, uh, Bobby Garwood is, is one of my Facebook friends, and he sends pictures. <laughs> out on his wall, and he seems to be doing well in the film. Well, you tell him that I asked about him. And, and oh, I will. Him. Thank you. I will. And, yeah. uh, he's a yeah, good man, I, I, and I, I think he's gotten, a, he's gotten a real shaft from his government because even if he did, and I don't know, I wasn't there, so I, can't, I, can, I can only go on what Bobby told me and what his attorneys told me, but if he did those things, did he do any worse than some of the guys that played with Jane Fonda? and caused torture or people that, that, that were tortured and gave information. I mean, look, I, I it, it was a horrible situation, but I know that he didn't do anything 
that some of the uh, guys that came home as heroes didn't do either. Some and, of them. And I saw on uh, 60 Minutes a week or two ago when they did the thing on the Hanoi Hilton. And the, the brave gentleman who was at the Hanoi Hilton, he looked into the camera and he said, we were tortured so bad, we had to give them something. And we tried to give them lies as best we could. Yeah. And, and from that, Bobby Garwood is no different. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we don't know what transpired between his captors and himself as this gentleman on 60 Minutes. I can't remember. I, I should pay homage to him by at least remembering his name. But he mm -hmm. actually was brave enough to look into the camera and say, we had to give them something because the pain was immeasurable and, and yeah. we were at the breaking point. No, so, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't have one bit of uh, issue with that at all. I'm sure what they gave him wasn't anything that was worth anything. That yeah. must go beyond name, rank, and serial number and give them lies or give them crap. Is, what's wrong with that? You know, who cares? Uh, yeah. And so, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just so sad the, the way it all, the way it all came down. And I, I just think it was all handled wrong. And now people, you know, the old CYA bit, you know, you gotta, you gotta cover up, like you say, once the, the, the web we weave, you know, it's, and I saw it. I mean, I, I saw, I saw the lies. I mean, they lied to me so many times. See, they, they were, they didn't know what to make. Bob Dorn was that way too. I don't know if you knew Bob, but he, he was a great guy. He was a little bit crazy, but really he'd laugh if I, he heard me say that. It's, uh, but you, they didn't, the, the DIA did not know what to make of somebody who followed up and, and saw for himself what was going on. I didn't, I didn't sit there in that chair in the committee. I made five trips to Vietnam, one to two to Russia and several to Laos, Cambodia uh, and, uh, and China and other places seeking answers only on this. That's the only reason I went. Uh, and I didn't go for any other reason. I just went on that reason. It sure, sure as hell wasn't. I didn't stay in nice places. And I, I saw things that, uh, you know, that they couldn't challenge. They can't, they couldn't lie to me because I knew they were lying. Mm -hmm. Stock is a good example when we went under the, 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 the tomb. Uh, and, uh, and that's just one example. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could go on. There's one I should share because I didn't mention it. There was a live sighting report in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, and, uh, um, well, there were a lot of park guys were in Hanoi Hilton, but there was a live sighting report after they came home. And there was a, a story, uh, the, 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 the witness said that he came in through the gates of this compound where, where I believe it was the Hilton. I, I might be wrong on that, but he came through the gates of this prison compound. He walked 40 or 50 yards straight down uh, to the end of a, where there was a, a, a bunch of buildings. He turned right. And he went down uh, four or five hundred yards and there was a cistern in the courtyard. And he said, I saw guards guarding a, a couple of American POWs who were bathing or taking water out of that cistern and bathing or drinking. And so I saw that report. And so I asked for a debrief because I was going to Vietnam and I wanted to go in that prison. So I asked for a debrief from the DIA and they said, well, he's lying. And I said, well, why is he lying? How do you know he's lying? How do you know this guy's lying? He said, because there's no cistern there. I said, okay, good. That's that's fine. That, so he's a liar because there's no cistern. Yep, no cistern. 
Can't see prisoners bathing in a cistern. It doesn't exist, Senator. Ha ha. Slam the book down, walked out. Have a nice trip. So when we get there, we go into damn compound. I walk down there, turn right at the building, go all the way down the end, and there's a cistern. <laughs> so if they had debunked it by saying something else, one thing. They debunked it because there was no cistern. So they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Either that or they made it up and were just debunking it because they didn't want to find any live guns. Or they didn't yeah. want to embarrass themselves. If I can bring up one more name, and I'll apologize for bringing it up because I don't want to hit one of your trip flares here, but uh, Commander Trowbridge from the DIA. We have a three-minute clip in which he explains how the DIA operated with the entire intel community and with each individual service secretary, and he said everything that we had from the entire intel community was given to each and every service secretary on individual POW cases. How credible. During these years, DIA's role in the issue expanded and the agency assumed the chairmanship of the interagency PWMIA Intelligence Ad Hoc Committee. Through this committee and the POWMIA Intelligence Task Force, which was formed in December of 1971, DIA worked closely with each of the military services and with the other members of the intelligence community. These committees, which were comprised of representatives from the intelligence sections of each of the military services, as well as appropriate representatives from state and CIA. They monitored and focused the worldwide PWMIA intelligence efforts and expedited communication with the policymakers. I want to emphasize that the entire intelligence community was involved in the collection and analysis of information which could be related to our men. During these interagency working meetings, which were usually held weekly, information was exchanged on specific cases to ensure that each of the services had access to all collected and correlated information, and that any information that the services had would be commonly shared. During the war, DIA's efforts were focused almost exclusively on trying to determine who was being held prisoner and where they were likely being held. While DIA was obviously interested in any information on a missing man, Crash and grave-related information was more the responsibility of the Joint Personnel Recovery Center, whose mission was to pursue the long-term task of recovering U.S. personnel after search and rescue operations had been suspended. The Joint Personnel Recovery Center was the forerunner of the Joint Casualty Resolution Center, which has more recently become the Joint Task Force Full Accounting. All types of information were used to determine the likelihood of captivity. Some information from sensitive intelligence sources were often quite reliable. Open source materials and information from visitors were also of value. Unfortunately, for many years, the North Vietnamese steadfastly refused to name any of the prisoners they held. Some POWs were identified through various broadcast media, while others were photographed, often by communist bloc media outlets, which permitted DIA to verify their status. In some cases, it was not until after they were permitted to write to their loved ones and their families that they were certain that they were alive. I might also note that during the course of the war, a few men escaped or were released from camps in the South. Through them, we were able to learn about others still in captivity. In the case of North Vietnam, several early releases provided us with hundreds of names of PWs. Much has been made over a perceived difference in DIA's analytical assessment versus the status in which the services carried a man. Right here, I want to make it absolutely clear for the record that DIA did not and does not determine the legal status of a serviceman. That is the sole responsibility of each of the military service secretaries. 
During the war, there were a few cases where, based on information DIA received or upon the circumstances of loss, DIA through its <clears throat> thought it possible that the man was a POW, yet the services carried him as in missing in action. The status the service assigned was always the legal status. How Our credible do you believe uh, uh, Mr. Trowbridge uh, was uh, where you are concerned and where you were involved in dealing with him uh, in his billet at the DIA? You know, I always got along with him. I, I, I had several discussions with him. Uh, I found a lot of what he said to be accurate. Uh, and um, uh, But sometimes I felt like he was... Uh, he had to. He had to play the. Um, so he was a yeah. hostile, a hostile witness. Maybe is that the right phrase at times? That's what yeah. I saw. Yeah, I think so. He, but he he had he could only go so far. There you go. I think I always felt if I could sum it up in a sentence, I would say I always felt like he wanted to tell me things that he couldn't tell me. I sensed that <laughs> by watching some of his testimony. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 exactly. and John Baird's going to throw up, uh, he's going to edit in, I'm, I'm thinking, that three-minute video that I speak of, to which I, I, I don't think family, POW families, understood, I didn't anyway, I'm going to throw my, my, my guilt out there saying I did not know that the DIA had weekly meetings, I think he's what he said, John Beattie, remember, with all the intel agencies that they did work with, and they they gave all that information to the service secretaries. But I think the families that are listening to this podcast should watch this clip and then send a FOIA into the DIA for anything relative that Mr. Trowbridge discussed that they did about all the cases so these families can get in response, hopefully, in their FOIA request, their particular name of their family member from that committee that Commander Trowbridge discusses in this three-minute uh, bit of testimony. Uh, I think that does a good service for these family members, and I am one of those. I did not know that's how they operated. So. Yeah, and I'd go one step further and say, I think the families deserve all of the information, any and all information where their loved one is mentioned, whether it's factual or not, uh, you know, or whether they think it's factual or not. I mean, they deserve to know what came through the hands of the U.S. government. They certainly deserve to know it as much, if not more, than than some bureaucrat who's, you know, analyzing it in, in, the, in, the, in the U.S. government. And that was what I tried to do. I tried to get everything declassified. To me, when you're back, what, how many years? How many years now? Has it been 50 years or whatever? Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, there can't be anything. The only thing that I could see where you might want to hold it back is if there was some derogatory remark made by a leader about another leader that could cause an incident or something. I can understand that. But what the hell could be? important like why would there be anything still classified about the about the baron 52 what in the hell could there possibly be out there and yet they still have stuff classified on it and and it it doesn't it, it, there's just no sense to it it's just wrong and that's why we have the system now we're with a situation now we don't trust our government i don't you can't even trust the government on anything anymore you can't trust the fbi you can't trust the voting system you, you know you 
you don't know what to trust. You don't. I used. I taught history. I taught government. I taught the U.S. Constitution for God's sake before I went into the government. Now, I, I, I'd, I'd have to say everything I taught you is wrong. It's not what it. It's not what it said. It's not what it. It's supposed to be. They're supposed to be honest. Nobody elected these people. I remember my poli sci one hundred and one. Uh, yeah. To which uh, you look at how the government is set up now, and then you shake your head uh, based on <laughs> what you just what you just said, Senator. You know, you you talk about uh, all these uh, all the information. They say, well, you got to have one bar, two bar, three bars. You got to jump higher, higher, and higher every time you get one row of evidence. You got to get the next row. I remember, and they, and, and any time you had a live Saturday report, you got to get four more, and you can't talk to this guy or whatever. You got that ten people prove it. If you get 10 people say they saw him, you got to get an 11th one. Well, I remember early on when I was in the House before I went to the Senate, um, I remember there was a hearing. Uh, Solar, Steve Solars was the chairman at the time. This was back in the days of the Montgomery Commission and then that stuff. And and I said, uh, why don't you talk to Garwood? What What is the problem to the DIA? I said in one of our hearings, I said, why don't you speak to Garwood? Rather than tell me what he what you think about what he said or what he may have said or may not have said, and you know what the guy said to me? He said, "I have no idea how to contact him, Senator uh, Congressman Smith." I reached in my pocket, took out my wallet, got a little piece of paper. I said, "Here's his phone number." I said, "I'm not going to give it to you until I talk to Bobby, but I've got it. So call me." He never called me. He never called back. But I set up a meeting with Garwood in Ocracoke, and then they tried to shut me out. Yeah. They tried to have the damn meeting without me after I set it up. They wouldn't tell me what time it was or where it was. And then Bobby called me and said, hey, are you going to Ocracoke? I said, well, what? And he, he said, yeah, we're going to Ocracoke. We're going to meet in a motel down there for three days over the weekend. And I'm going to debrief with the. I said, I'm going down. And so he got there and they said they didn't want to talk to him without me there. And Bobby said, if you want to talk to me, Smith's here. Otherwise, we're going home. And that was that. And I sat there and listened to the whole thing. And Bobby told him the truth, too. And it shocked them. Well, I, I, I'm I'm fulfilled with this <laughs> episode, if if you don't mind me saying so, Senator. And uh, well, pardon me you, for running my mouth so much. I no, we're glad that you did. We appreciate it. I, I get so emotional about this, and even now, you know, all these years, and to know all the struggles that you guys have had gone through, your family members especially, and friends, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's uncalled for. And I one of the we did not get a chance to really get into North Korea in terms of the committee, but I did go there and I met with the, the Soviet pilots who actually trained the Chinese to fly the MiGs that shot down uh, American planes. Well, we saw the footage of the we saw the, the a number of the aircraft. We knew who these people were, and the Russians gave us this information. So when I got back, and I had the information myself in my own hand, 10,000 documents we brought back, 10,000 documents, films, uh, papers, documents, you name it, uh, testimony. And I brought it back, and, the, and they were all over me at the Pentagon to get it. And I said, look, I'm going to give it to you, but I asked one condition. One, give me a briefing on what you found and what you were able to uncover. Never heard a word again. It would not drop into that black hole. And I know there was stuff in there that families would give in their eye teeth to see because they would have it would have told them how their person, how their loved one died, or at least what happened to them. Never got it. Same thing in North Korea. When I got I, I got 12 sets of remains back from the North Koreans, uh, went right into Pyongyang 
uh, went to the DMZ, then up to Pyongyang, and um, and they they provided the remains uh, to me. I mean, I had to. I, it was it was rough. I mean, we were threatened, but we were able to get them. And uh, never even I didn't even get. I said, could you at least tell me whether you found in these twelve sets of remains that I provided you, and you could see them. I mean, I don't want to go into detail, but it was it was very special to see these men there, their remain bones, basically with remnants of clothing and wallets and photographs and all in these. And, and I made the North Koreans turn them over to us with white gloves, with respect. And I said, um, and I said to them, when I brought, brought them out and I went and I turned them over to our people, I said, all I want you to do is to let me know if you've able to identify and connect any of these 12 soldiers with their loved ones. Never heard a word back. Nobody ever contacted me, never got back to me, nothing. Now, why, you know, what's the reason for that? So I don't know. They may have been turned over. They may not have been. I don't know. Anything else for the good of the order? <laughs> Thank uh, you. Well, I'd like to say to all of you uh, we how much I appreciate what you're doing. Heather, you, especially with all the, you know, pushing the ball forward like you have. And I know John, <laughs> both Johns are complimenting you on that. And, uh, it's uh it's good to get this out because this stays as part of the record and, you know, we're all not going to live forever. And the truth, I believe someday the truth will come out and uh, hopefully we'll be on the right side of that truth. I can assure you of that. 